Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. And I'm Seymour Butts. <laughs> the game is the movie we watched this week, Levi. Give us a synopsis. Oh, the game. Old footage depicts a childhood dec- of decadence for a young Nicholas Van Orton. An ice-cold businessman for his birthday, a less responsible brother gets him an experience with, a con- with consumer recreation services. After a visit to an office and a series of tests, the game begins with a key. At an important meeting, life begins to take a turn when Nicholas's briefcase won't open. Later on, a waitress spills wine on his suit, and a mysterious letter tells Van Horten to follow her. Events trap them in an elevator, and then lead to an alley escape and a dive into a garbage can. Van Horten becomes confident at following the clues of a game, until a hotel room situation puts his character under assault with coke and amateur pornography. Nicholas learns that it is not a business matter, but antagonization from CRS, and then finds himself trailed by a private investigator. As the motives of the game makers become unclear, Nicholas's house is ransacked, and his brother appears frazzled. After a conflict between the two, Nicholas is driven off a pier in a taxi to discover the game is still continuing, but much more dangerous. The cops are of no use, and returning to the waitress, we learn the entire production is a con, and that Van Horton money has been stolen after gunmen give chase it turns out the waitress is in on it as well and nicholas is drugged and awakens to find himself in a grave in mexico after losing everything and returning to the states he attacks the crs offices only to discover that it was all part of the game but he accidentally shoots his brother so he throws himself from the building only to be captured by a waiting team and he finds himself at his 48th birthday party after trying to commit suicide what a movie eric what did you think well, at the end of the movie, when he l- falls through the giant glass ceiling and lands in the big poofy thing, I wrote down one word and it was goofy. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's like, <laughs> this movie's pretty goofy in a lot of ways. Uh, mostly the bumbling, bumbling protagonist who like cannot get a grip on things. And after repeated displays that should change his perception and tell him that everything is the game he still cannot understand that everything is the game uh and in the end i mean ultimately the movie was very entertaining but i don't know if it was satisfying that's how i would review it from a entire movie perspective i like that choice of words that it is not what would you say it was unsatisfying the ending? I said it wasn't satisfying. It's I mean, not it's, it's satisfying. an interesting. It's thing. not unsatisfying, but it's not. I I didn't leave the movie satisfied. I didn't leave the movie being like, wow. Like when you leave seven, like seven builds up to this amazing climax, and you know maybe it's unfair to compare this movie to seven, but that's what we do on this show. Um, seven builds up to this amazing climax, and after you're done, you're like, wow, that was a really satisfying experience. Uh, did not have that same thing, even with the twisty turny plot of the game. Now, when was the last time you watched this movie? Did you know that the ending doubles back on itself? Did you remember? I never seen. I've never seen this. You've movie. never seen this movie. Okay. No. All I could recall was that he shoots Sean Penn at the end. Uh-huh. I did, and I got to that point. And I went, "Oh no, what a rough ending!" And then he threw himself off the building, and I went, 
I don't remember this part. And then he crashes into the big poofy thing, and I go, yeah. he just committed suicide for his 48th birthday in front of everybody he works with. I mean, that's why it's so goofy, right? Like, they invite all of his friends, and then they're like, what's the big poofy thing for? Oh, you'll see. <laughs> and then he falls through the ceiling. <laughs> Which, if you're on that end of things, and you don't know that he com- right. he attempted suicide, it would be like, oh, that was a sweet way to come into a party. And, like, how do you explain that? How do you explain that to the German book publisher? How do you explain that to your <laughs> ex-wife? How do you explain that to your attorney? How Like, what is it? Oh, but it was just this big game, and, like, I accidentally thought that I shot my brother, so I jumped off a building, and I ended my life, but it turns out it was a big poofy thing, and blah, blah, blah. It was just, like, that's why I say it was goofy, because ultimately I think it was supposed to be some kind of twisty-turny psychological thing with, like, an interesting ending. I think it would have been much more interesting if he would have just died. But th- th- the minute he lands in the big poofy thing, I'm like, uh, it's pretty goofy. It's a pretty goofy film. And the problem is that it doesn't take itself... It takes itself really seriously. So that goofy moniker comes across as an insult, I think. But like I said, ultimately, you know, I was I was interested to see what happened next in the film. It's just the ending was a little underwhelming. Yeah, there are some really big themes that with his father committing suicide when he was young, mm-hmm. and here he is attempting it, but we don't get any follow-up. What is his, other than the fact that he tries to pick up an actress who has been acting the entire time that he's been hanging out with her, which is, right, you know, kind of like following a stripper out of a strip club. <laughs> afterwards and be like hey so yeah you know so you I, had really a gr- liked I had me. a really great time in there and despite yeah. the fact that you were paid vast sums of money to spend time with me <laughs> right this but you great. really like me we, we had really, a connection yeah. right like no you're a really good stripper is what you are <laughs> um you know there, there just wasn't that unfolding at the end like in seven where the decisions that we see made are very much the culmination of the entire film yeah. In this one, him jumping off the building is, it's very similar. He's been driven to the edge. He made this mistake, although really at the hands of a very flawed uh, business strategy. Uh, yeah. The fact that he threw himself off the building and then we don't see him say, you know, I've really thought about this. And now yeah. that I have nearly committed suicide, I see I'm taking life for granted exactly we see him shake a bunch of hands of people who witness this and nobody's going you should get help which is what everybody in that that's an intervention (laughs) is what he threw himself into or should have just tried to kill yourself yeah i mean and the thing about it is that there were so many intricate little things to this game that if he would have turned left instead of turning right the game would have not happened the way it was or unfolded the way it was supposed to like i just assume that at the end the game's still happening <laughs> the, like the, they turned <laughs> they, they turned you into such a paranoid viewer that you, i mean at the end i'm like so the game's still going on right like she invites him to coffee they go to coffee they get kidnapped i don't know what happens but it's like I, I had a feeling that, like, the game was not over. That like, would that, have been an awesome ending. If she goes, let's meet for coffee, she gives him a date and time, and then mm-hmm. we see that date and time, and she's not there, but there's a key on the table or something. <laughs> that would yeah. have been... Yeah. Levi just rewrote the ending. My favorite thing to do, 
because it's a really <laughs> dick move to every screenwriter yeah. and director in Hollywood. And maybe there wasn't anything like that, but that's the thing is that this movie, very much like Seven, we are walking through the eyes of the protagonists, which means that we know what they know. We don't have any outside information except for what we see on the screen and what the protagonists uh, experience. And in Seven, that's really interesting because we're kind of unfolding a mystery and it's, uh, you know, everything is more shocking than the last thing and it gets really exciting and it builds up to a great climax. Keeping us in the dark gets us to this very uh, satisfying resolution. In this movie, since all we know is what Michael Douglas's character knows, uh, we are par- we become just as paranoid as him. So at at the points in the movie when you know, like how many times does the actress have to like flip flop and tell you she's in it or she's not in on it or blah blah blah? When they were in the thing and she hands him the cup of coffee when they're in the cabin and she hands him the cup of coffee with the two lumps of sugar, I'm like, don't drink that. Like I became a paranoid nut watching this movie and i think that that's why the ending came across as so strange to me because like you said there's no nothing there that says well now he's a new man like this is a scrooge movie it's basically a scrooge movie you know it's it's the rich guy who was an asshole and then he goes through this experience and then he becomes a better person and it's it's a it's a theme in movies that happens a lot well uh Fincher you know, loves it. When we get to Fight Club, they condense it to 30 seconds where they pull the man out of his shop and threaten to kill him right? and ask him what he wants to do. And that's – you. they process the entire plot of this movie in my, in a few seconds there. So Yeah, but, th- but that's not really a Scrooge tale because he's a, he's a poor kid who works in a Chinese restaurant. But he takes like, his, this is it's a matter of taking life for granted. Right, but this is the whole thing of like the the privileged class, you know, the, he literally says it like the beginning like you, if only to his secretary like if only you knew what it was like to be, you know, a part of this society then you would you would understand how, you know, dreary it is. And and so it's this it's this thing of the upper class guy who's out of touch, you know, finding his come up and and making a big change via this experience it's, it's like happened in trading spaces like the the eddie murphy movie oh yeah you know like it's 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 that it's a scrooge it's a scrooge tale but the difference is that scrooge becomes a better person at the end and gives bob cratchit uh christmas off but also there's bob cratchit like this movie i think kind of suffers from what alien 3 suffered from in that there's not a whole heap and ton of likable characters in this movie <laughs> uh and because of that I feel like it doesn't have that same flavor that Seven has, where we're seeing this thing unfold and the mysteries are building, because we were on their side. We were on the detective side in Seven. I don't know if I was fully on the, the side of the protagonist of this movie, because he, we, he, we intro- we're introduced to him, he's an asshole, and then we're supposed to care about him for the rest of the movie, and I think the movie kind of hinges on that. And since there is no catharsis at the end, it ultimately comes across as unsatisfying. Well, and the one person who is that likable character is his ex-wife who Mm -hmm. through very little, we come to respect the decision that she made and be happy for her that she has gotten away and found the life that she wanted. And in the end, she's the only one that Michael Douglas can trust. And she's in on it. She's there. 
what the shit? That is such a mean thing to do as somebody well, who carries think... that much trust. What? How? Do, what? What do you mean she's in on it? How is she in on it? Because she's there at the party in the end. Yeah, but not everybody at the a... party was in on the game. It, uh, you know, because it felt his lawyer as if. But his lawyer comes up to him and says, "I don't know what this was all about, but but you have good champagne here." <laughs> All right, that's fair. Well, I've still the fact that she's at the end, and again, it's the issue of all of the tension and things that he's been through, mm-hmm. and nobody is. I mean, the the big poofy thing is there to catch him, and we really want this group of people to be there for him and catch him, and they kind of it feels like they drop him. This trust fall exactly. is a fail. <laughs> You're totally right, man. Like. There's no support system for this man who just tried to commit suicide. Versus it's, it's, Scrooge, everybody loves him when he comes around. Right. Everybody's like, hey, you were a huge bag of dicks, but now we're cool because you're being <laughs> nice. My favorite new uh, saying from Silicon Valley is uh, more useless than a bag of dicks without a handle. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's basically a bag of dicks without a handle, but then he redeems himself. There's no redemptive thing here. He's still just a rich dude. Uh, except now everybody thinks he's kind of crazy. Um, like he's suffering. Like that's, I don't understand. You're totally right, man. Like the end of this movie, if you don't know, if you're not in on the game and you see him fall through the ceiling (laughs) after exhibiting six months to a year of schizophrenic behavior, Maybe you're pretty worried about this guy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's it's pretty intense, dude. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, this movie's pretty funny. But it, at the beginning of the movie, I, I will say that there was some pretty great setup to this movie. Like, there's the whole screenwriting idea of all dialogue and all scenes in a movie should either be a building character or B moving the story forward. And the first like 10 minutes of this movie are great character development. Like it's interesting where we get introduced to Michael Douglas's character. We get introduced to Sean Penn's character through conversation. We know we learn that, you know, Michael Douglas is divorced. He's super rich. He's part of high society. Uh, He, you know, has these flashbacks to his childhood and his privileged childhood uh, we find out about his dad died. We find out so much about these characters. And then that scene with uh, Douglas and Penn at the club where Penn gives him the invite and says, hey, you should do this game. It's pretty fun. Um, I feel like that scene does a really good job of both painting who those characters are and then moving that story forward. Like I, the, the, the storytelling at the beginning of the movie is really interesting. They do so much with the with no dialogue in the setup of seeing the old footage. It, it's mm-hmm. shocking how much that can tell you about there. Down to the fact that he has a younger brother that he feel you know they all they show is him holding his baby brother Nicholas. And so when we see Sean Penn pop up, it the fact you can connect that so quickly, and then through mm-hmm. I. A large amount of the dialogue is questions that are largely not directly answered, but in the non-direct responses, they tell so much. When Michael Douglas asks about uh, medication and Sean Penn responds, why would you ask that? We see that he's a 
he's working through this issue that it's been an issue in the past that Nicholas has been there for him in the past and he has relapsed and we can tell that he has now had a different experience and is again fighting the habit and potentially has found a way out and then when we find out about CRS you begin to project between the two of okay he's off of a medical habit but what has replaced it what is this game that has replaced a powerful addiction and they cram all of that into Sean Penn smoking in a restaurant in California with the name under the name Seymour Butts mm-hmm. it's very fast and very intensive dialogue just the yeah. density of it and I loved it I was I have the same notes just that we learn so much about the characters so fast and Christine as well uh, you know, getting fired and the way that she walks away, you can, there's so much that in lesser movies, they would literally spell out word for word. Hey, I had a rough time growing up. I'm trying to make it in this city. I work uh-huh. six jobs waitressing. You're, I don't like you because you're rich. And simply in the way she huffs and walks you can register yeah. so much of that and you don't need to know it. And it works out because you don't need to know it. She is an actress. <laughs> it turns yeah. out playing this role. Um, and the whole movie is a, a semi metaphor for, you know, the filmmaking industry in a way. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of illusions that I really enjoy down to the, the race through CRS's office at the end. And you see all of the participants that have been screwing with Michael Douglas from the, from the start right down to the two guys that were telling him this game will change your life. And they were doing it in the background to bait him out. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing. Like at that point I was excited to see all of those actors in there because I was like, okay, the guys who play the cops, they got to be in on it. The guys who's told him to join the game, they got to be in on it. And they all were, it was a very satisfying payoff. Um, and you're right. They even say, we used like movie effects to fake yeah, all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's squibs. Yeah, um, and so I felt like that was all. You know, it, it's basically our thing. It's it's an allegory for watching movies in that we have to suspend our disbelief. Uh, we have to we have to allow ourselves to question but to ultimately go along for the ride whenever we watch movies and uh then in the end i don't know man i just have so many problems with the ending of this movie but i'm looking over my notes and i had plenty of stuff that i liked during it uh i think it it will suffer from being sandwiched between seven and fight club which mm -hmm. are both also very mental movies uh and they're challenging of psychology and character reaction to external uh, effects. I think the issue with the game is that the payoff was just, it it wasn't as profound as you were hoping. Uh, Yeah. Probably. And partly because it just feels like it's cut short. I think if they had stuck the landing, a lot of the questions, uh, I'm trying to think if it was Travis or Davey Mack, somebody pointed out that, what was CRS's plan if he varies yeah. from the route? I'm willing to look past that if at the end the the psychological payoff is there because then it, mm-hmm. the movie, that whole series, it 
Yes, he could have veered off, but he had to be on this route because that's what the movie required for this finale. And in a lot of ways, it's still... I think that still applies. I wasn't too... When they get to the end and they're, oh, well, if you didn't jump off the building, I was supposed to push you. That was sufficient for me to not get too mired in the... the his... Uh, diverging diverging from the intended path because they even screw with you when he has the gun and how they how christine reacts to it where did you get that gun the guard's gun was an automatic and you start wondering oh they really didn't find his fake his gun the one book that they didn't touch on the bookshelf right but it but they did yeah they got to everything and that was fun i enjoyed the gun reveal because he starts carrying around to kill a mockingbird. And, you uh-huh. know, I, was, I watched it with my dad and my wife, and we, uh, when he reveals it, it wasn't a climactic reveal. It was some guy trying to steal his car on the street, and to have it sort of at that early moment makes it feel less planned than CRS would have us believe. Because if he pulls it out right. when he gets to CRS. It's like, haha! They knew about it at this point. When he pulls it out early, that's where it starts to feel as if his agent, if he has, he has agency with that gun. And then they turn it on you later. Um, so I, there was a lot to like about this movie. That the ending right. was just like you said, it was not as, and I would couch it as not as satisfying as Seven or Fight Club or a right. lot of other Fincher's movies. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think that sandwiching this in between those two films is maybe unfair. Um, But I think we also have to look at this as, you know, Fincher's third movie. And um, there's going to be some growing pain still. I mean, he's still learning to how to exhibit his voice. And I think that was my main issue with it. It seemed like a pretty big tonal shift to go from a man committing suicide to a dopey dude dancing in a dunce hat uh, at his birthday party i mean the t-shirt at the end is almost too tongue-in-cheek um and also like there's no way he would survive that fall even with the big poop <laughs> i do think that this movie was had a lot of good examples and i'm i'm starting to take note of it and it's usually not until the end of the movie i look i i wish i had the time to do a second watching with the full commentary mm-hmm. because when I get to the end and I start to think what are uh, Fincher's marks, I think this movie was full of them, especially with yeah. just his eye for, uh, you know, I'm trying to think he's, he talks about, and I think they bring it up in the every frame of painting. There are a couple interviews where he brings up the notion of the, the close up shot and how powerful mm-hmm. that is, but how he tries to at times, Use it with very mundane things, yeah, to give you some some room. And I think this movie plays with those shots really well with the close-ups. I think in the dialogue, he cuts back and forth more than someone like Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright, who like to really take those long shots of dialogue. Yeah, and that's something I usually attribute to editors who are really feel choppy when they mm-hmm. have those back and forth, back and forth. Fincher just, he's got such a good rhythm in the dialogue and those shots of moving back and forth that I 
it's something I've really come to appreciate is being able to have a conversation between two actors and to cut between them back and forth and not have to do the single shot to be, to engage me similar to Hmm. those guys. I don't know. He does for the, it's going to sound worse than it is. He does boring shots really well. Well, he does. I mean, the one thing that I think will carry through forward on this and it was, there in seven but i feel like it really does find its way in the game is that visual style that he uses of the playing with the light and the dark he breaks so many rules when it comes to like filming in front of windows or uh under lighting scenes you know we're so used in this glossy hollywood world to have everything so well lit and so meticulously available to us but he uses these dark contrasty scenes to keep things hidden from the audience and it works really well in seven it works really well in this movie uh because of the paranoia that's that's uh throughout this film but then and it also works in later movies i i I couldn't help but compare this film to gone girl even though we have a long way to go before we get to gone girl um because Gone Girl has a very similar, and I'm not going to spoil Gone Girl for you, but it does have a very similar paranoid feel to it. And I think it'll be interesting to compare these two movies once we get to Gone Girl. Because I feel like they're very much in the same vein to one another. Yeah, the setup, what I would like to watch for is how Fincher does claustrophobia with Gone Girl. For, mm-hmm. Because I think in most of those scenes, there there isn't anything like in the game where he's running through an alley or crawling out of an elevator into an elevator shaft that's lit, you know, really beautifully with just that, those fluorescents in there, uh, the backseat of the car with the water coming in. There's a lot of moments that just kind of make the space feel real tight. I feel if I recall correctly, Gone Girl has that same sensation, but without this action oriented drama. Yeah, I mean, I I do think we're we're coming upon some Fincherisms definitely with this movie. Um, first, for its Fincherism that I'm definitely going to be looking out for more is using a morning routine as an introduction to character. Yes, because the first time in Seven, the first time we see each of the detectives, uh, well, it's not the first time we see um, what's his name, what's uh, Brad Pitt's character, Mills. yeah, yeah, Mills. The first time we see Mills. He's not there. But then the scene after that, we see his morning routine. So we we see Somerset's morning routine. We see Mills' morning routine. And the first time we see Michael Douglas's character in this movie all grown up, it's his morning routine of him getting up and, uh, you know, putting on his suit and getting his uh, meal from his, uh, from his maid and going off to work. So... I'll definitely be out for that, like looking at how Fincher might use that in the future as a character introduction of showing people getting out of bed and seeing their morning routine. That would be an excellent YouTube video at the end of all of this, (laughs) similar to every frame of painting for Fincher to show how Mm -hmm. routine can tell you so much. Because it really, I think that Van Orton and uh, Somerset have similar... uh, specificity in their routine they the, yeah. you know the watch meticulously laid out versus all of somerset's tools uh but it would be great to just line up all of these routines from 
and I don't know that we got any in Aliens, but all the way through to the end of Gone Girl, because I'm sure we're going to get all of those. I'm pretty sure we get one in Fight Club of Edward Norton's, because he, you know, to, and to show how mundane his yeah. life is. I mean, I think that starts on the airplane, but I'm not sure. I'm going to keep a lookout yeah. for it. Um, and another thing, and I stole this from every frame of painting, but refrigerators he shows the inside of the refrigerator <laughs> uh of course he does it in uh seven in a little bit of a weirder way because it's the glutton's refrigerator <laughs> but uh but in this one as well um we go to uh when we go to the actress's apartment and he's starting to uncover that everything in this apartment is phony that the lamp was bought at a thrift store he goes to the fridge, he opens the fridge, there's nothing in the fridge. The refrigerator could tell us a lot about a character as, as well, so I'm going to keep an eye out uh, for the refrigerator. That's a great catch. It's, it's, actually, it's actually made me question. It's made me think, like, what does my refrigerator say about me? Because my refrigerator is not necessarily... <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily organized. I'm going to go in it next time but I'm at your place. You're going to see I'm me just wondering, surreptitiously like, open it in the background. Yeah, if a stranger saw my refrigerator, what would they think? Because one thing that we do is we generally eat like all of the food in the refrigerator and then we go grocery shopping. So the only stuff that's in there consistently or over time is like salad dressings and you know, sauces and that sort of stuff. Mayonnaise, that sort of thing. Generally we stuff the refrigerator with food and then we get to the state where it's empty and then we go grocery shopping again. So I don't know what that says about me, but I would love to know what Fincher thinks that says about me. <laughs> Maybe what stage of my refrigerator he would like to show. Maybe we'll get somebody um, along the way. Maybe social network yeah. or something. That'll be yeah. What's his face's uh, fridge? Yeah, Zuckerberg. Baby. Zuckerberg. Um, another thing that I like. I mean, just small things here, like a pinky ring. I feel like if somebody wears a pinky ring, they're untrustworthy. <laughs> You know, it, like it reminded me of Saul Goodman from Breaking Bad because he always wears a pinky ring. And it's always just a little bit sleazy to me if you're wearing like some kind of signet pinky ring that you got for a, obviously got for like accomplishing something like getting a bonus or a 10 year anniversary or something. I'm like, I, I just associate that with sleaziness. I just assume um, that went on your right ring finger, those sorts of rings. I don't know. I mean, they in this one he's got, he wears it on his pinky, and I think wearing a pinky ring is is kind of like sleazeballish. And I, you know, that's an issue for me in this movie. Is like I wasn't fully rooting for him because I didn't really like him as a character. So, I mean, I you know, I we're, we're going along in this journey with him, so I didn't necessarily want him to die or drown to death, even though I kind of thought that wouldn't happen but uh but ultimately i don't know if he's an extremely likable character because it, we see him at the beginning and he's a jerk he's a jerk to the wait staff um he's very short with people he's not personable uh he you know hold up in this giant uh you know relic of a mansion in san francisco which i thought was an interesting setting for the movie but then once he actually gets in the game he's such a bumbling fool like he's even he's, not nice to his uh, his not his maid. Does she count as his maid? Mm-hmm. And you know that they've been together since his childhood. And he really, yeah. br- even when she she tells him happy birthday, and he brushes her off. 
He doesn't even say anything. He's happy birthday, good night. Like, yeah, this is his Alfred. And she lives on the premises. <laughs> like, she lives like 20 feet away from the front door. It's so sad. Um, and that's the thing about it is, I mean, you and I play a lot of games. So at some point, you kind of realize what the game is. And then you start playing the game instead of letting the game play you. He was just letting the game play him the entire time, which I found kind of... Um, I just found it kind of unsettling. I was like, really, dude, you're falling for this? Like, this is, this is like, obvious. He got a little like, confident when he went to the hotel and yeah. he was talking about, oh, where's my key? Because he's sensing what's coming up and then he reaches in his right. pocket and he goes, oh, click. I think that's the only time where he thinks he's in right. control. And then he gets well, in the hotel room and there's coke which i really thought he'd hide by just just right up the nose <laughs> really <laughs> he's he did not strike me as a user that was it would have been weird to me if like he, he had like one or two cocaine. trips you know as a powerful um, executive i mean maybe in college but <laughs> uh, i mean it would have been like that scene too um after that when he runs to the guy that he just fired who had flown in from germany i'm assuming no, he was in Seattle. Uh, the booksellers were in Seattle. Oh, he was in Seattle. Okay. That makes more sense. That makes more sense because he took a day trip. Yeah. Uh, you could take a day trip from Seattle, San Francisco. Um, but when he goes in and he throws the pictures down, I'm like, really, dude? Like, you think that he's trying to set you up because of a business thing? You don't think this is the game? Or you think that he's in on the game? But he's not really in on the game? I don't think the German guy was in on the game. Nope. He was just there for the fake funeral yeah um so that's the thing he's savvy when he gets the key to the room but once he gets in the room he can't say to himself oh this is all the game and this is all just goofy um and i thought that i thought that the knock on the door was going to be the cops which would have been interesting i don't know uh it sounds like i'm really bemoaning this movie but i was pretty enthralled the whole time that's the i think just the the ending kind of Put, put me off. I think there. That's that's Fincher. Something he has to be very careful about. He's very meticulous, and uh, it will make there will be larger issues in the end for his works if they're not if they're not seamless enough. And I think yeah. that was something that Guillermo del Toro could work around with his more bombastic stuff because he you just didn't care. You were watching his movies for fun, but. When Fincher starts playing with your mind, you really, you really start paying attention and thinking about what you're watching. And he's he talks yeah. so much about it himself when he talks about doing close-ups and being careful about it because when you do a close-up of something, that's what wakes the audience up mentally. You start paying because right. you're subconsciously aware this is important. This is a thing that I have to look at versus a scene where I'm listening. Uh, and so I think one of the issues with this movie is we've looked so closely at everything and we just, there wasn't enough to grab onto when we get to the end. If there was some redeeming yeah. qualities, if he, the guy who, who has a heart attack and Christine gives him mouth to mouth on the sidewalk. Yeah. Nicholas doesn't really jump to help him or the guy that reaches under the 
toilet stall door and asks for toilet paper, he brushes people off repeatedly. We don't see him. Yeah. We don't see his a good character emerge in those moments away from the the business table, which I think would be justifiable mm. if he was a dick when it came to business, but he had these small redemptive moments then we could come around on it. But he doesn't really try well, and help the waitress. He doesn't try and help the guy in the stall. He doesn't try and help the guy that passed out. He's not really that good at helping his brother out. <laughs> well, I, I, but I, I also thought that the, he didn't do those things because he was paranoid. He didn't give the paper, toilet paper to the dude because he's like, oh, the dude wants me to go in that stall and there's going to be something in there. Uh, or like he, it seemed like he was more savvy about the game at the beginning and he became less savvy about the game as the game went on. And I think that all hinges on the scene with his brother. When his brother comes in, that really raises the stakes. Because at that point, it's kind of these, like, meddling things. You know, it's the hotel room. It's the, you know, setups and all of that. But once the once he has the scene with his brother, where his brother's all paranoid, and then, obviously, when, the, when they put him in the back of a taxi cab and throw him into San Francisco Bay... That really raises the stakes uh, a ton, um, because now it's like, oh, these guys are out to kill you. Like that, that all of a sudden the safety net has been, you know, taken away. So that that scene is good, but I, I think you're I think you're right. There's in the end, I don't. Where's the catharsis? What 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 does he have to hold on to? What what changed? I mean, there's there's a small things like I feel like him selling the watch and letting go of his past, like that's that's pretty interesting. I think that that's that scene was good in Mexico because it's like him, you know, having to get rid of something that was given to him by or was his father's. So kind of letting go of his father's uh, legacy. That's mildly interesting, but from a character perspective, it was like, what what actually changed? Well, and that's... I, I don't know. Yeah, because they break him... It's similar to the tra- like any, kind, any form of military training. You break them down all the way to build them back mm-hmm. up. They broke him down. At that point, when he gives up the watch, that's it. That's his last shred of dignity uh, yep. and the last thing that he truly owns of value. Mm-hmm. And so... And then when he walks in and he has the experience where he doesn't have any money, which is an experience he's never had before, when he walks into the truck stop and he goes, I've got $18 for a ride to San Francisco, it's, it's, it shows a couple of things. It shows that he's now been put in a desperate situation where he doesn't have any money, which is a situation he's never experienced before. And then it also kind of shows his pompousness because I feel like he doesn't even know what $18 is worth. Uh, a little bit. I don't know. I, he's definitely desperate in that scene, and it's probably something that he's never experienced before. There is that catharsis, but he just doesn't. A little there's bit. There's no build up afterwards. There's no right. Why the motivation for his redemption is to get all of his material possessions back? Well, I don't know. At the end, he says, "I don't care about money. I just want to kill the people <laughs> who did this." To also, me. not a so. great motivation for a character we didn't like in the first place. Yeah. And see, there are and, some masterful, and there's no big villain. I mean, CRS yeah. is so uh, amorphous that it's difficult to pin them as a villain. In the end, if they if they had yeah. somehow played it so that Christine was the mastermind, then we'd be able to I direct a that. little bit more. 
we we just needed a direction to for the villain. We needed something to pin it on, but everybody was an actor yeah. and fake and false and so we just it's the big faceless corporation which is not <laughs> it's it's hard to to just blame that in a movie in t- under 2 hours. We could do it all yeah, the time I mean, in I, real world. I was I was on I I was under the assumption partway through the movie, I had the question in my mind. I was like, is this like another fight club scenario where he's doing this to himself, but he doesn't know it? That would have been cool. Like, cause he's got the means and he's got the knowledge to do all of this stuff to himself. (laughs) (laughs) So like, maybe there's some way that like, I think it would have been interesting if Sean Penn's brother was the mastermind. Like, that's kind of interesting. And then he did this to himself or something along those lines. Um, like, do you think that Sean Penn actually had this, actually went through this program when he was in London? I think he did. I think he... Okay. And I think the experience was the same. I think it's often going to be the same experience for everybody, showing that you have mm-hmm. all of the things you need to be happy, so stop wasting it. And as someone who had a yeah. drug history while having so much money that really is a kind of a wasted effort for him to be chasing those things when he can have success if with just a, a modicum of discipline but that was never really required of him being the the little brother with a father who committed suicide before he was 8 uh you know yeah. so you don't necessarily blame him for his habits but it's easy to project onto him that he could be in control at any time. And so I, my Hmm. assumption is that the London experience was similar to his brothers. They drove him to rock bottom and then he appreciated what he had more. And he saw that his brother had the same issues, but instead of drugs, his brother buries himself in his work and needs to Mm -hmm. be brought out of that. It is the, it's the Scrooge storyline for everybody. Well, it's like Scrooge makes the Truman show. Yes. And the Truman (laughs) show is what I use to describe this to Liz. Uh-huh. Because there is this voyeurism in the the ability for CRS to have this omnipotent control over the world. Because in the end, everybody he he interacts with, with the exception of his immediate surroundings, is in on it. And even in the end, right. those people are present at the party, which I think makes them mildly uh, accomplices to this this whole batshit yeah. adventure. I just don't understand how you explain that to the people who don't know what's going on. Well, it appears that they didn't know what was go- that that was how he was coming in. Nobody stood. Sean Penn didn't stand up and go, "All right, we've driven him to suicide. He's going to come crashing through this window." <laughs> they just went. But maybe I mean nobody was really surprised by it. Like nobody was screaming. And there's also a giant inflatable thing in the middle of the ballroom. What do you think this whole adventure? cost in <laughs> I was thinking I was thinking about it um, and I'm not sure because they did say CRS owns the building which they may not actually <laughs> um, you don't know what to trust I I was thinking a price tag the price tag that sounded right to me was somewhere around six six and a half million dollars for a full year of all this manipulation and like replacing the ceiling in the ballroom with breakaway glass <laughs> and 
hiring a scuba diver and destroying his house and uh i don't know i i i would say six and a half million dollars sounds okay to me but it might have been more i don't know because he had a little sticker shock (laughs) yeah well the movie cost 48 million so it was probably (laughs) just a little bit under that was my thinking Maybe I'm being way too naive here. Yeah, this but, costs um, what a movie cost. This is he paid to be in a movie. Basically, yeah. I I mean, I didn't get those allegories. I like that there's there's a correlation there between like the filmmaking experience and what we do, uh, and what he goes through. Um, there's also the sticker shock of movie ticket prices. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But there's also well, there was one scene in this movie that I just want to talk about because I felt like it was really an example of like masterful filmmaking, and that's the scene where he goes and basically kidnaps the guy at the zoo. Mm-hmm. Because I'm watching this scene, and at this moment, Michael Douglas's character is at his wit's end. And he is on the last nerve. He is ready to do whatever it takes to take down these people who have ruined his life. And I was watching this scene and I'm looking at these tigers in these tiny little metal cages. And I'm like, I was like, geez, man, like, really? Like they put these tigers in these tiny cages? Like this is the zoo? And I'm sure, you know, that that was the zoo at some point. Um but it's a, it's a great metaphor cuz at that moment he is the caged tiger. He is uh ready at any moment to, you know, bust out with with extreme anger. And it's a very interesting subtle thing because it took me a second to correlate my emotion about seeing these tigers in these tiny little cages and what's going on in the scene and I was like, "Oh, this is obviously intentional that the emotion you feel intrinsically just seeing the environment for this scene also correlates to the way that the characters are feeling in the scene at the same time. So setting that thing in that zoo, in that particular lion enclosure that's, or tiger enclosure, that's, you know, these tiny little metal cages, that these magnificent beasts are trapped within. It was a great metaphor. And I was like, this is the type of stuff that really separates Fincher from, from other directors is that he knows how to set the tone of a scene through things like environment lighting and it gives you a visceral feeling when you watch it and then the dialogue and the characterization on top of that meld together into a very affecting scene so that's that was the scene that i was like this is really really impressive it's it's moments like that that i just it's fantastic, and there are great metaphors to be found throughout these mm-hmm. movies. I, especially with the tigers and the cages, because in some of it too, in the broader theme of a life not fully lived, you cage mm-hmm. animals, and that docile. I'm trying to. There's a movie where they make a huge point of. Have you ever seen what happens when they, when they put tigers in cages? Is it Kill Bill? I can't I don't think so. Oh, man. Somebody will put it on the forums. Uh, it, it's a threat. Oh, no. It's... Is it... It's crap. I it doesn't matter what the movie matter. is. Sorry. Just explain the concept. <laughs> um, the, the idea that when you, you watch the the wild... Ti- the look in the wild tire as it slowly dies mm-hmm. because being locked up for so long... And, I mean, that's the domestication 
actually yep. the animal evolves in that instance to be not it's not its wild self that's why feral cats are not the same as a house cat because it has to reintroduce itself to that wild side so yeah in the context of michael douglas is living a dull and boring life when he has all this potential mm-hmm. with such means and here he is caged yeah. and so they break him out of the cage in the same way that you fall through a glass ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's great metaphors that go through this whole thing. And you're totally right. I think that he probably has a lot more potential, but he has been trapped in this world that his father made for him. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he still lives in the same house that his parents. Yeah. That is the same. And they do. That's, that's one of the big points that they make is that this is the age at which his father jump from the roof of a building mm-hmm. uh, which you know they they try hard not to elucidate the relationship between Douglas and his father in this movie and I think in some ways that affects too in the end maybe maybe if there was more sort of framed around how around how he has become his father that he dreads this uh I don't know. Maybe that would have helped to wrap it up at the end or that he doesn't yeah. commit suicide. You know, he actively chooses not to because he tries. And I think by stealing that from him, it, it in a character that is already flawed and difficult to cheer for when he doesn't even choose to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. There's something about that. That's demoralizing. Like seeing a tiger in a cage. It's a weird tonal shift to go from committing suicide to uh, to having a party and then an hour later asking a woman out to coffee. You think there'd be a much more affecting thing for him here. And the other thing about it is, like I said, the movie makes you so paranoid that I didn't buy it. <laughs> I did not buy it that that it was over. Like, none of that stuff needed to be true like the bill didn't have to be true the thing with his brother didn't have to be true there could easily be a game too which i don't think there needs to be but <laughs> please don't please don't yeah, make please a game don't. Too. but but i just did not buy that the game was over because i because i'm on the journey with this paranoid dude the whole time so now i'm super par- paranoid of this world and I'm questioning everything, and I'm questioning everyone. And so when you tell me the game's over, I don't fucking buy it. And let's know. revisit this when we get to the end of Gone Girl, because I think that's where yeah. we'll see a really stark difference mm. and maybe why that movie, it in my mind right now at least, it still rates higher. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want to start the rankings now, but it this thing... I think it beats Alien 3. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's any... <laughs> I don't think there's any uh looking down the list of movies about I don't that. think Alien 3 is going to it's going to be the bottom movie for both of us I would guess when we get to the end. Oh, we shall see, my friend. I don't know. I I think there's one more movie on this list that I haven't seen. Um Actually, no. I think this is the only other one that I haven't seen. Well, so the twists are gone. Now we're going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the mystery's gone. <laughs> but what do you think? So when he goes to CRS, they tell him that the point of the game is to kind of fulfill what's missing. So maybe we could deconstruct this a little bit. So what was missing? 
we talked about it a little bit. I think that he maybe wasn't fulfilling his full potential. Uh, he's following way too much in his father's footsteps. I think that that's a huge thing that he needed to f- kind of break out and, and make his own path, which could be, I guess that makes sense with the ending. Uh, if he, if he needs to basically experience what his father experienced, do what his father did just so he can shed that from himself and be his own person. Maybe that is the ultimate catharsis that he, that he was trying to get through. Um, you know, shedding the watch that he always wore. That was his father's watch, shedding that watch, jumping off the building, dying in the same way his father died and then allowing himself to shed, shed that parental, you know, um, legacy that had, that had, carried over his entire life maybe that's it maybe that's it i guess that makes maybe sense. there was more between because bear the book the german book guy makes mm-hmm. a point of the fact that he was friends with nicholas's father but in the end nicholas still says you're still fired so later hope it's cool <laughs> yeah. and the book guy goes yeah that's cool i'm ready to retire anyway maybe they're Maybe something was just missing there. I mean, maybe that's where... Because the watch is part of his father's legacy. But even that was given to him by his mother, which then adds a different emotional weight that we don't explore at all. We don't know how his mom died, when his mom died, and hardly that he had a good relationship with her. Uh, Yeah. So this bookseller, which did feel oddly placed in the movie... Because uh-huh. he barges in at the start. Okay, I get that. That's Scrooge being a miser at the start. But then when we get to the end of The Christmas Carol, that should have been his Bob Cratchit moment where he yes. says, okay, your books bring joy. You are you have, this, you have a legacy that you've managed to reach the end, you know, end of life still in this position. My father threw himself from a building trying to build uh-huh. his legacy. So I see the the beauty and your kids are here. We made, he made a point out of their kids. I mean, so maybe there was something that slipped in a script rewrite where that could have held more weight that could have linked him to his father. Cause I think you're right. I think focusing on the, the redemption and the his capacity as a, as a person, a successful person and how he Mm -hmm. missed that trying to fill his father's footsteps. Uh, yeah. I think that's where things probably go astray. And it's there. It's right yeah. there at the end because Bear's at the party. Uh, his brother could also be this. It could be Tiny Tim in that sense where, <laughs> you know, he's tried to help his brother. But obviously he reached the end of his rope in that regard as well. Uh, yeah. You know, where he brings his brother into the – I just – there are there are those pieces there, and he at the end I think, addresses I think right. them the same way that he always has. He was jovial with his brother before; he's jovial with him now. He was businesslike with Bear before; he is still businesslike with him in the end. Yeah, I mean, Bear's happy; he should be retired. I, I feel like um, I'm not like bummed out that Bear got fired because it seems like he's probably should be retired at this point. Um, I think that the relationship, the interaction between Michael Douglas and Sean Penn at the end of the movie is much more jovial than it was at the beginning. I think at the beginning, Michael Douglas is more tolerating his brother. And at the end, I think that they're probably closer. And I think that you're also right. Um, 
I think that there's something really terrifying about carrying on the family business and following directly in your father's footsteps when you know where that led him and always having that hanging over you. I guess that that is his moment at the end of the movie is that he has followed his father straight to the end and now he can be his own person at 48 years he old. He needs Leonardo DiCaprio to get up in his noggin while he's dreaming and convince him <laughs> to throw off his father's that would have been a much healthier way to address this ish, this life <laughs> issue. Hey man, the voters didn't vote Nolan. <laughs> oh. Uh <laughs> that's uh it, 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 I, I like that take, actually. That that rationalizes the movie for me a little bit more. And unfortunately, I wish that it just came across a little bit better in the film. But I guess we went, we did it, Levi. We went on the journey, <laughs> and I think we figured out a satisfying a reason for this. A logic movie. to the problem. And that's, I, you know, like you said, Fincher's third movie. And these are not yeah. scripts that he's writing whole cloth himself so i think Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we get a much different experience where guillermo del toro and quentin tarantino and edgar wright they're all writing their own stuff and fincher the way that he curates these scripts is i think one of the great parts of him as a director i think he's very intelligent and he really pulls pieces out that he is very skilled with because i think in the hands of a sloppy director this movie could have been one that oh, you yeah. you would only see on TV and you wouldn't know the name of. <laughs> yeah, this this could have really been done poorly. I mean, there were a lot of things in this movie that... I mean, there's kind of astounding this movie came out in 1997. Because it all holds up. That's one of the things that I really respect about David Fincher. Is his movies freaking hold up. Seven holds up. That is a movie that you know does not need to live in its era of the of the 90s i think 7 was 95 um i it, it's so interesting to me how he's able to make these almost timeless movies that that 20 years late this movie is going to uh celebrate its 20th anniversary next year and apart from the flip phone cell phone everything in the movie is fairly uh timeless i mean even down to the point where Michael Douglas has a button on his steering wheel that that hangs up, hangs up his phone. Like he's basically got Bluetooth in '97. We do get the the ominous payphone yeah. call, and that will be lost on the next generation. <laughs> yeah. oh, I've heard about What's those that? things, but you didn't know how I, I can't you don't know you... how scary it was when one rang and it wasn't. It was just by itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. You don't know how fun it was to call your parents collect when you needed a ride home from school. <laughs> um, oh, I, you're right. The timelessness of Fincher movies, and I'm yeah. sure I'm going to say this again when we get to the end, these are movies that I will enjoy showing my kids someday. And we talked about it with Pulp yeah. Fiction. How old does a kid have to be? How old does your kid have to be before you <sighs> show them? I want to get my kids right at that perfect age where it's like seven's going to really kind of screw them up. But I'm going to really enjoy oh. watching them just be like, oh. I feel like ninth grade. <laughs> ninth grade? Ninth grade. Oh, that is a terrifying age to see that stuff. I feel like I saw Seven when I was in like, because like my older sister would kind of expose me to <laughs> movies. So it'd be like, oh, you got to see Seven. Oh, you got to see, because like, 
I don't know, Seven came out. You know, she's four years older than me. So she would kind of be like, oh, you got to see Seven. You got to see Pulp Fiction. You got to see, like, so there was all these movies that, like, I had to see. And, you know, when I was this movie geek and I was, like, 16 years old, I was like, oh, well, I got to check this stuff out. It was very affecting for me. But I feel like ninth grade is probably okay, depending on the emotional maturity of the Well, if you watch it with them and you kind of... You know, show, maybe I'll start with the game, see how they react, and Dude, then crank are, it up to you seven. You are seriously forgetting about awkwardness of watching certain scenes with your yeah, parents. Yeah, but there was no sex in this one. Like, I feel like it's the the yeah. naked boob that really is when <laughs> I would shrivel up on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I used to uh, watch, you, you know, we used to watch a lot of Friends when I was a kid. Because, like, Friends was the big sitcom. And I remember, like, watching Friends with my parents, and every time that they talked about sex, I would just act really confused. <laughs> you start looking around the like, room for an egg. Yeah, like, oh, I don't know what, I don't know what they're talking about. you want a beverage? I'm like, going to get a beverage. <laughs> I'm going to get... You're like Nedry yeah. in Jurassic Park. You're trying to find an excuse <laughs> to leave. Please let me out of here. <laughs> ah, well, with that, uh, we're going to move on. So, uh, listener, thank you for listening this week. Please go to the forums, forums.baldmove.com. There will be a forum right there as this podcast is posted for next week's movie. It's a little tiny movie. Nobody, <laughs> it's a little indie film. Nobody's really seen it. Um, so I'm interested in, in checking it out. Uh, it's called, uh, is it called Fought Club? I think it was Golf Club. Golf Club. You are correct. Golf Club is up next, uh, so please go to the forums and <laughs> go to the Golf Club forums. Oh, I also posted a really good link to uh, the teaser trailer that David Fincher did yeah. for the game. It's really good. It's what an actual teaser trailer should be. I highly recommend everybody yeah. go check it out. You know, It's a teaser trailer. It's like 30 seconds, maybe a minute long. It's really good, man. And I love... There's nothing like that anymore. They don't do, like... Because it's completely shot only for the trailer. Like, there's no scenes in it from the actual movie except for, like, one quick scene at the very end. But the whole thing is shot uh, direct only for that teaser trailer using props and, I'm guessing, CGI. Uh, It was really cool. Like, I wish they did that a lot more. Instead of like you know our, our Justice League teaser trailer, <laughs> which, which basically trailer. shows the entire first act of the movie. Yep. Not yeah, not really excited for that movie. I'll I I'm so I'm gonna go. I gotta watch BVS. Uh, I still haven't seen it. Gotta watch it because um, really excited about Suicide Squad. Yeah. So I, I want to watch BVS before I watch Suicide Squad, just in case there's any crossover. Good luck. Anyway, guys, that's enough movie talk. <laughs> This one. Uh, so please go to the forums, uh, forums.bobnoob.com, or send us an email direct podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. And until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut. <laughs>